Paul's letter, written probably from prison in Rome to a small church in Ephesus. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin this morning um, not with an illustration, but with some preliminary comments. That might sound kind of boring, but hang with me. Last week I began with an illustration, and it was a picture. You may recall the picture. It was a picture of two different kinds of leaves on a citrus tree. That picture was great. I'm, I'm glad I used the image. But there's one problem with the picture of a citrus tree or the picture that you just saw in this video of a vine that bears grapes. Because a picture of a particular plant, that image only goes so far in describing what the fruit of the Spirit are all about. So what kind of picture would be even better? Every analogy breaks down, right? I think the kind of picture that would be even better is one that we can't conceive of. And if I were to create it for you, you would think it was kind of odd, maybe weird. It would be a plant, a tree or a vine or something that produced oranges and apples and pears and grapes and any number of other fruit, all from the same stock. Why do I say that might be a better image for the fruit of the Spirit? Because the fruit of the Spirit are diverse, right? There's lots of them. They're not just one. They're really, in many ways, quite different from one another. And we should reproduce those fruit and perhaps more that Paul did not list as Christ followers. So that's the first preliminary comment. Second preliminary comment. These fruit that you just saw listed in the video and uh, read about routinely in Galatians 5, they are not the exclusive produce of believers. Correct? You know as well as I do that there are some people who are remarkably patient. And you know those remarkably patient people are not always believers. Right? And you know that there are some believers who are remarkably impatient. You're looking at one. Sometimes we have well, an inclination 
towards certain things that are called the fruit of the Spirit. Other times we have a hard time with some of the fruit. The point is that God wants to cultivate in our lives all of these fruit. And if you have patience, or if you have one of these other attributes, God wants to season it and make it even more sweet. The most patient person I ever knew was my father. For those of you who never knew him, and almost none of you did, you wouldn't understand. But if you knew him, if you knew him, you would know exactly what I'm talking about. He was the most patient man in the world. It skipped a generation. (laughs) My son is remarkably patient compared to me. So thankfully, he got some of my dad. I suppose I got some of my dad, but if I was going to look at a list of things in this passage in Galatians 5 that I was least qualified to speak about, it would be this one, patience. But of course, next week I'll say it's another fruit. The point is, it doesn't seem right when you're talking about patience and you find yourself to be an impatient person. So, first preliminary comment. One tree with one kind of fruit, probably not the best image. Let's think of a tree with multiple fruit. Second, the fruit of the Spirit are not the exclusive domain of believers. There's plenty of people who aren't believers who have those attributes. Third, a definition of patience. Can we do that before we even begin? What is patience? according to this passage in Galatians 5 and the one that was referred to in Ephesians and throughout the Scripture. Actually, in Galatians 5, the word patience that we have used is translated in older versions with different words. Words like long-suffering and another word that we don't use very often called forbearance. That's the description that older authors give of what we call patience. In other words, perseverance without retaliation or revenge. That might be one way to define patience. You know what I mean? Or how about this? The ability to put up with things and or people without getting easily angered with things circumstances, or people, or God. That would be a demonstration of patience, the kind of thing that Paul is speaking of in Galatians chapter 5. But in order to think about just this one word, patience, and its application to our lives, um, I have three points. That's not surprising, is it? I usually have three points. The first point is this. God's patience with us. Sometimes the God of the Old Testament is viewed as a rather harsh God. You hear that frequently, right? Or maybe you think that when you read the Old Testament. But if you take a closer look, examine more carefully the history of God with his people in the Old Testament, you'll find a remarkably patient God. 
You really will. Sometimes God's patience is, is amazing. One of the passages that it's often quoted, and it came through in our psalm, and it was reproduced from Exodus, no doubt. It goes like this, the Lord is compassion and compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and in faithfulness. How is that demonstrated in the Old Testament? Routinely, God laid out a design for people to follow. The Ten Commandments and a variety of other things. And he told the people, if you do not follow my commands, bad things are going to happen. Right? Many bad things. He didn't delineate all the bad things. Because to delineate all the bad things, I suppose, would be the opposite of faith, wouldn't it? He doesn't have to tell us all the things that will go wrong if we do not follow his commands. But they would live in such a way that was disobedient to his commands. And very expectedly, when they lived in disobedience to his commands, bad things would happen. And sometimes God would proactively punish his people. But what is also true, and this is the storyline that should not be eclipsed when we think of a God of judgment. What is always true is that he also forgave. They disobeyed and he forgave. They disobeyed and found themselves isolated and in slavery and he restored. He did it over and over and over again. You know what forgiveness implies? that kind of compassion and forgiveness, it implies that there's something that needs to be forgiven. And in their case and in ours, there's plenty that needs to be forgiven. And that's why you can see God's patience with us. You might compare God's patience in other ways too. One of the stories that's, it's a very short book in the Bible, it's a story about Jonah. And let me remind you of the story of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet, and he was called by God to go to Nineveh and to speak a word of judgment against this great city, Nineveh. And he said, I don't want to do it, God. He not only said, I don't want to do it, he ran from it. So he ran to a a town called Tarshish to get away from God's command. And God said, I'm not going to let you off the hook. He didn't let him off the hook. As Jonah is on his uh, way away from God, uh, a gigantic storm comes up, and it appears that the boat is going to be taken up by the sea, and the sailors want to know, who are you, Jonah, anyway? You're a passenger, but we don't know anything about you. And he says to them, in effect, I'm a follower of God. He didn't say I'm a prophet, but In effect, he did. I'm a follower of God, and I'm on this ship, and I'm running from God. They were terrified when they heard that. In other words, you're running from God? Maybe that's why we're in this horrible storm. And Jonah seems to affirm the fact that that is why they're in the horrible storm. And he says, as a matter of fact, if you want to solve this problem, throw me overboard into the sea. And they say, no, we can't do that. That just doesn't seem right. And Jonah said, in effect, do you want to live? throw me overboard. 
And so they cry out to God and they say to God, God, please do not hold this against us. We're about ready to throw somebody into the sea. Don't hold it against us. He told us to do it. So they throw him overboard. Of course, as the story goes, Jonah is swallowed by a huge fish and then spit out on shore. And God says, now are you ready to go to Nineveh? Yeah, I guess I'll give in at this point, right, says Jonah. So he goes to Nineveh and he preaches this, this, this sermon of judgment on the town. This magnificent city. And not only do the people hear the word and begin to repent, the king of the city hears the word and he repents. And he calls a national fast and a day of repentance. And what does God do? He forgives. It's what God always does when we cry out to him. He forgives. But what does Jonah do? He gets mad. He pouts. His exact words are these. Lord, I knew this would happen. That's why I ran away the first time. Because you are forgiving God. And I knew you'd forgive him. My goodness. Um, it's easy to judge Jonah, isn't it? But have you ever been there? Have you ever been so wrapped up in your own self-righteousness that you want to see judgment? And then when forgiveness is extended, you're frustrated with God. Why? Because God is so patient. There's a New Testament image. The image of the prodigal son, or sometimes called the lost son, where a son leaves his father and goes into riotous living, the old text says. And eventually he comes to his senses, says the text, when he's in the pigsty, and he realizes his father's servants have more than he does, and he goes back to his father to repent and to ask forgiveness. And God, who is the image bearer in this story, representing the father, the father God, he forgives. Well, what happened at the beginning of the story? You know what happened at the beginning of the story? God let the son go. The father let the son go. He said, in effect, I'm going to let you be stupid. I'm going to let you rebel. And I have enough patience to wait until you've learned your lesson and you return. The patience of God. It's amazing. Jesus was always patient with his disciples. How many times do we remember these words? I've been with you this long and you still don't get it, guys. But I'm going to stay with you. Or how about the episode with Peter, when Peter says, how many times should I forgive? Seventy? That's a lot. And Jesus says, no, seventy times seven. In other words, endlessly. Don't try to calculate it. That's God. 
That's the kind of patient he is. So when God calls us to bear the fruit of the Spirit, namely patience, he's asking us to bear the fruit of the Spirit that emulates him. That kind of patience. The second thing I'd like us to consider is not just God's patience with us, but also our patience with others. And this is where the rub comes, right? I'm quite patient with myself for the most part. It's you I have a trouble with, right? I'm very patient with myself, and I'm very impatient with my wife. I was very patient with myself as a father and very impatient with my children. That's just human nature. So what about patience with others? Again, we're called to imitate Jesus Christ. And the passage that seems to point to this most directly is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgave you. Why the emphasis on forgiveness in this particular sermon? Because there's nothing that takes more patience than forgiveness. You you just about can't exercise forgiveness unless you have patience with other people's foibles. So let me pause and say something about forgiveness that you might not be expecting. If we're going to be forgiving people and patient people, just like the text read a few moments ago says, we have to be patient and forgiving of other people for the purpose of unity in the body of Christ. You know what part of that patience means? Part of that patience means you have to be patient, not just with mean and nasty people like we sometimes are, not just with people who don't get it like we often do not. We need to be patient with people who absolutely disagree with us. who absolutely disagree with us based on what they believe to be a deep conviction. In other words, we have to be patient with one another when we go in opposite directions. We have to be patient with one another when we don't agree about all the issues. Now, I know there are dividing lines in the sand. I get that. As a matter of fact, this church exists because of such a division like that. This church began to exist because the founder of this church felt like he could not continue in another church based on what I would call high theological convictions related to orthodoxy. I hate to see churches split. I said one time to that individual and to others in this church, 
I am so happy to be here to serve this church, but I almost wish it didn't exist. I wish there was a way that people could have loved one another and embraced difference enough to continue on. But it couldn't happen. And I'm not criticizing that. I understand it couldn't happen. Because the gulf was too great. But my friends, it's very easy for people like us of deep conviction to create a gulf that is not necessary to create. So if you're up against that, ask yourself the question. And pray to God for wisdom. Whether or not you're creating the gulf or the gulf is real. Whether or not you can embrace the other in unity, even if they don't completely agree with you, about something that is really important to you. I think that's patience with the other. There could be any number of uh, illustrations of patience with the other, but I just decided to use that one. The third, uh, as we cultivate patience, that I think is helpful to understand seems almost blasphemous. Our patience with God. See, you're already looking at me like, what? You've already set this up that patience means you need to be nice and kind to someone who might not be nice and kind or someone who might be wrong. or so. You know what I just did? So why did I put God in this equation? Because we need to be patient with God in order to follow God. <laughs> why? Because God doesn't always make sense to us, Right? Because God's commands frequently run in the opposite direction of our desires, which seem oh so righteous and holy and good when we're in the middle of them. So we need to actually be patient with God. Or let it, let's put it a different way. We need to be patient with the commands of God that we do not understand. We need to be patient with the scriptures which seem at times to be absolutely inscrutable. When, when Paul was speaking uh, about God on one occasion, which is about all he did, talk about God, you know, the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 11, I think borrowing from Isaiah chapter 55, he belted out these words. It's almost like he said them out loud before he wrote them, but we don't know. It seems like they're better said than written, but thankfully they were written and they are these. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And it seems like to me when Paul said those words or penned those words, he must have been out of breath. What a God. I read a theologian this week who 
reflecting on that passage, said this. What a God. Who can second guess him? Who can begin to grasp the greatness of his truth? Who can predict what he will do? Who can trace out his logic? Who can say, now I've got him figured out. This God we worship is a most mysterious God, incomprehensible. He refuses to be impressed with our neat theological boxes as though we could write down a list of statements about God and draw circles around them and say we have it all. As though his being and his ways could be bound by the limits of our intelligence. Uh, Before you ask who it was or speculate who it was, it wasn't some theologian who was outside the circle of orthodoxy. It wasn't some theologian that I went to study with at Yale Divinity School, which frequently was outside the circle of orthodoxy. But I learned a lot from them. I have no apologies for going there. It was a very conservative, evangelical theologian who said, when I look at this passage, I can't believe that kind of God. And I'm humbled when I try to make a list and pretend like I've got him figured out. Here's the problem sometimes with the patience that we don't have with God. Here's some of the problems. We want all the reasons that God might have for the circumstances God has allowed us to be in. And that's a problem. We also... Don't you feel this compulsion sometimes? We also want the answers so that we can answer the critics. Whenever the critics lash out against Christianity or our God, we want to have the perfect answer to put them in their place. And the perfect answer does not exist. And we're not entitled to it. And it's likely that God won't give it to us. We have a sense of entitlement that's huge on a lot of different issues. But this is one of them. Friday night, my wife and I went to a play at Cardinal Theater. Wonderful little play called Rounding Third. It was about baseball. Um... Little League baseball coaches, just two people on the stage the entire time. But near the end of the play, right at the end of the play, one of the coaches who had his son on the team who couldn't play baseball very well and had a lot of difficult life circumstances that preceded this game, he, he stops and he just looks up in this play and he starts talking to God. And he admits that A lot of times he doesn't think God exists, but he says, just for purposes of this conversation, I'm going to believe you exist, okay? Because I have a request. And he says, 
describing a litany of things that had happened in his life that he asked God for and it went backwards. He said, yeah, I don't understand that. I guess you have your ways. I guess you have your reasons. All I'm asking is just one thing right now. This, this whole dialogue, by the way, or monologue with God, is happening in the seconds when the ball is in the air to the outfield, and his son, who never catches a ball, is hovering around underneath his ball. He says, God, just let him catch it. Just this one time. It's the first time he's ever been in Little League, and because of his age, it's the last time we'll ever be here, and it's the last game. God, please just let him catch it. Well, the kid catches it, and they lose the game. But the kid caught it. What's the point of the little monologue, at least from my perspective? God, I don't understand why you don't answer all my prayers the way I want you to. How many of you are here this morning who recently cried out to God, God, please, whatever it was, and you didn't get the answer. If I was a certain kind of preacher, I'd probably tell you it was because you didn't have enough faith, and that's a bunch of baloney. The reason you didn't get the answer is because God is sovereign, and God has his ways. And you may never, ever understand it. And you're probably not entitled to the answer. What you're supposed to do is to follow God by faith, which I'm calling patience with God. God's timing seems never to be our timing, right? And that requires patience. So in conclusion, just three things. God's been patient with you and with me. So we must be patient with one another. Second, God is all wise and all loving. He has your best interest in mind. So be patient with God. He knows what he's doing. And third, God is not through with you yet. This is the topic of another sermon. Have patience with yourself. Okay? God's not done working on you, you're not done failing. And grace is not over. So be patient with others. Be patient with God. And be patient with yourself. Because he's crafting you into his image. You can be sure of that. Or to put it in the words of the song that Adam sang, he's in the waiting. Be patient and wait.
I mentioned last week that I wanted to conclude every uh, sermon uh, by reading a prayer, which I believe will appear here momentarily. And I want to read this prayer with you. Um, By the way, for those of you who have uh, sent me emails, I've tried to get back to each of you, but I've also posted that prayer on the website if you'd like to take a look that way. I don't have to answer all the emails. Here's the prayer. Let's pray it together. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy upon me. Amen. Heavenly Father, you are so kind and gracious to us. You've extended patience to us more times than we can remember. And certainly it seems more times than we deserve. So we pray you will help us to emulate your character and extend that patience to others. That you will give us patience whenever you're stretching us and not revealing the future for us and in our estimation not not answering our prayers. We pray you will give us patience with your sovereign control in our life. And Lord, we pray that you will remind us that you're still working on us. You're not finished yet. And that we won't bail out. We'll have enough patience with our own failings so that we can experience your grace because it's abundant and free and we need it and thank you for it. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.